Please take your Bibles, if you would, and turn in them to the book of Colossians and to the third chapter. And we will begin shortly in verse 13. We are in the final third of the letter, we might say, the section that has turned to dozens upon dozens of commands to us in light of all the glories of chapters 1 and 2. So today, we're within this command section that really starts in 3.1 and goes through 4.6. In a subsection of it, we might say in verses 11 through 17, which speak particularly to the church and to all of our relationships that we have with other believers. So using the thought from verse 12 last week, we might say, that the way, this is addressing the way all who are chosen, made holy and beloved of God, are to be in relationship with each other in light of those three blessings to all other believers who are equally, as verse 11 stresses, chosen, made holy, and beloved by God. You might recall how in verse 11, God begins his explanation of how he renews us. That's a thought in verse 10 at the end. How he renews us in the image of his son by altering significantly our relationships with each other, with others who are in Christ with us, pretty radically. Revolutionizing the way we think about people, perceive them, look at them, and how we interact with them verbally and otherwise. Christ in all, the closing thought of verse 11, is the great equalizer among us, the great unifier among us, if he is in all of us, no matter how different we may all be otherwise. <clears throat> Last Sunday, verse 12, reminding us of the incredible blessings of being chosen, made holy, and beloved of God. God called us to be increasingly adorned. The command is to us to put on, but Christ is certainly the means by which we do that. The same compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience that Jesus showed when he was among us. Yes, God shows those things to us when he saves us, but he also shows them to us he's going to make apparent so that we manifest and display those as well. And so verse 12 began to unpack that with five sample characteristics, qualities that we are to manifest to each other. And verse 13, perhaps taking the last thought of patience at the end of verse 12, or all five of those together speak of two ways in which they will be manifested toward others. Particularly hard ways, as our title indicates, challenging for many of us, but particularly important if a body of believers is not going to implode, but is going to flourish. The harder of these two today is forgiveness. But the starting place is forbearance. The better we forbear, the better we forgive. Forbearance is meant to keep our relationships from splintering and fragmenting. 
forgiveness is given and called for when those relationships do, for some reason, become fragmented. And it is the means by which we begin to restore and reconcile those broken relationships. One other way we might think about these two very similar words in many ways. When it comes to things in other people that bother us, that are really different from us, that make relationships with them hard, we are called by God to forbear. When it comes to sins that other people commit against us, that hurt us, that wrong us, God calls us to forgive. So let's follow along with me if you would, and I want to encourage you as we look at this section together and pull out each thought as we work our way through. Last week, verse 12. Today, verse 13. Lord willing, next week, verses 14 and 15. But to just seek to have these soak into you more. Psalm 119.11 tells us that I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We could also broaden that to say we as a church have stored up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against God and that we might not sin against each other. Please follow, and when, we come, when I come to verse 13, would you join me for that one verse as a way of emphasizing today's focus? Here, I'm starting in verse 11, and here we note it is here in the body of Christ, here in the church, here amongst believers. There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. And that is a beautiful community of grace that God intends. I'm going to pray what Paul prayed at the beginning of this letter now for us. If you want to visually follow along, it'll be verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1. Lord, we pray this prayer now for us, for this particular Sunday and this particular text, that you will use it to fill us with more of the knowledge of your will in all spiritual understanding and wisdom. So we'll walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing to you, so that we'll bear fruit in every good work, so that we'll increase in our knowledge of you, so that we'll be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might, 
so that we will have all endurance and patience and joy. Amen. So God has a beautiful plan for the church as we noted. He's describing it here, outlining some of the core principles and foundations of it. He has made his son the head of it and the thought at the end of verse 14 that I think is fitting for all of this is he, he has designed it so that everything about the church life is bound together in perfect harmony. The Godhead has dwelled eternally in perfect harmony. Never once has there been a disagreement, a fraction of that relationship, any lessening of the intense joy of that relationship. Never once. That's remarkable. And that's what God wants of us. That's what he's saved us for, to have this incredible, perfect harmony with each other. And it's easy for us to say, yeah, someday when we get to heaven. But these are commands for us now, while here, while we're still so entangled with sin, but it's what he is desiring for us to have. God wants perfect harmony in our marriages, in our families, in our church, and in all of our relationships with believers. But, nice as that sounds, it gets complicated there, doesn't it? Here's how Scott Hubbard opened an article about this. I sometimes think I could be very holy if after doing my morning devotions I just stayed in my room all day long. I find that patience, for example, comes easier by myself. Peace, too. I feel a general kindness and goodwill when I'm alone, and I imagine myself ready to bear others' burdens. But then I leave my room and begin interacting with some of those others face-to-face, and before long, I wonder where my holiness went. Patience now feels fragile. Peace goes on the retreat. My theoretical kindness finds itself unprepared for real annoyances, and my shoulders seem too weak for real burdens. People, it turns out, have an irritating way of poking the spiritual fruit on my table only to reveal just how many of those apples and pears are plastic. I might prefer holiness to be a more private affair, a halo that hangs over my solitary head. But holiness, John Stott helpfully reminds me, is not a mystical condition experienced in relation to God, but in isolation from human beings. You cannot be good, and I would say you cannot be fully good in a vacuum, but only in the real world of people. And Hubbard concludes with a good thought. True holiness may begin between God and the soul, but it finds its full expression in community with other people. Other wonderful, glorious, frustrating, and sometimes offensive people. And so Colossians 3.13 is going to call us, charge us, command us to make sure that we're adorned with two particularly critical difficult, and beautiful pieces of our Christ's clothing. First of all, God desires, much as we started last week, each of these five things, and now on to this number six and number seven. God desires and the Holy Spirit produces in our hearts as we abide in Christ that we become increasingly clothed and adorned in Christ's forbearing nature. 
That's the first thought within verse 13. Just a very brief one, very easy to skim over, but I think worth hovering over for a few minutes. To bear with is to put up with all the things about people, and it is a massive group of things that might, in our flesh, grate on us, rightly or wrongly, while we're doing life together and rubbing shoulders and constantly interacting with each other. It's enduring, accepting, tolerating those things rather than letting them irritate, frustrate, bother, upset, and pester us. All kinds of things that even believers can do that bug us, bore us, annoy us, irritate us, rub us the wrong way, push our buttons. It can be just how different they are from us. <clears throat> their personality traits, their mannerisms, their idiosyncrasies, their weaknesses, their habits and practices, their opinions and positions that we differ on, doctrinal, philosophical, and many other ways. Often, it's not sin by them. It's just ways they violate, in a way, our own self-centered, arbitrary standards and preferences of just how we think people should be. Which often we don't live up to ourselves, but that's another passage. Note the term, one another. You'll see it a couple of times, or each other, in this section Last September, we tried to walk through the dozens and dozens, 30-some of these commands throughout the pages of the epistles. Here are two of them back-to-back, -back, emphasizing how critical both of them. Hubbard again, rightly grasped, the one another's are nothing less than the life of Christ at work in the people of Christ to the glory of Christ. The one another's are earthly dramas of heavenly realities. They are the love of Christ played out on 10,000 stages. So God intentionally makes every single one of us unique and different. No two of us alike. And those differences can either be things that divide and separate us or things that we appreciate and God uses to shape us to bring us together in perfect harmony with many different voices or many different instruments that all combine to make a very beautiful sound. Dan Miller, a pastor, uh, poked at this a little bit in some practical ways here that might be helpful. Invariably, when Christian brothers and sisters bore, annoy, irritate, frustrate, intimidate, or exasperate us, such visceral responses are rooted in our own sinful passions. Forbearance reigns in those passions. Beth and I talked about this. I just did the wrong hand gesture. Reigns. And I would say over those passions. It expresses enduring love for people our flesh wants to fight against or flee from. Forbearance is love in work boots. With love, it, for it bears all things, 1 Corinthians 13, and endures all things. With love, forbearance is not arrogant or irritable or resentful. It unrelentingly puts up with the weaknesses, failures, folly, and off-putting traits, habits, and practices of fellow church members. This means putting up with that brother whose personality grates against your spirit and that sister whose preferences never seem to align with yours. It means bearing with that member who talks too much or processes too slowly. 
It means enduring that member who loves awkward conversations, that ministry leader who enforces policies you find ridiculous, and that family who touts political views that give you indigestion. It means forbearing with that saint who struggles to break free from an exasperating pattern of sin. It means putting up with that elder who has hurt your feelings or displays weaknesses that frustrate or annoy you. And then he notes this. When we fail to bear with a church member, we disengage from the spirit's sanctification efforts and thus grieve him. We, of all people, should know we're very unfinished, very imperfect workings, projects, products of God's grace that is begun in us. But we, as we have noted all the way from the beginning of chapter 3, are so far from what ultimately we know God is going to make us. So in the meantime, God commands us to bear with each other, to keep in mind that they, your fellow believers, are also bearing with you. And it's quite possible they have the much harder job than you. If that's never crossed your mind before. We all live in this imagined pretense based from our pride that we are much more likable than we really are. So keep in mind that they're having to deal with you. But that's not ultimately the most driving reason even more than all the grace that other humans are showing you. Bear with each other because of how deeply, fully, and long the Lord Jesus Christ has borne with you. Romans 2 talks about the riches. So it doesn't just say Christ's kindness and forbearance and patience, but it speaks of the riches, the lavishing of those things on us by Christ, and that no one is to presume on those things. So how well you and I bear with each other displays how deeply we really appreciate God bearing with us. Secondly, quite related, and yet for many people incredibly more difficult, is that God desires and the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to produce and clothe us and adorn us with Christ's forgiving nature, which is what the rest of verse 13 gives more detail to that we'll unpack and uh, talk about. I want to just say up front a couple of things. One, that I realize talking about forgiving others and all of that is going to, for some people, stir up some difficult feelings. So I want you to know, if that's you, I have prayed for you this week. By God's grace, you will be able to hear him and see him and who he is and what he has done and find more than ever in your life how profoundly his healing of deep wounds is through his own wounds and how, power, how much power he can and will give you to truly be able to forgive some unbelievable evils that have been perpetrated against you. It is difficult to grasp the cruelty that some human beings show toward others. Some of us may have one big event. Some of us have myriads, countless events um, 
But may God use this text today to encourage you more than ever. I chose intentionally not to just move through this and take two or three verses, but to hover over this thought for the remainder of our time. And I pray, help, encourage, strengthen you. The question is not whether you're going to get hurt by other believers. It's just how and whom. And those often both surprise us tremendously. But it's also, how will you respond when it happens? Often it catches us unexpectedly. Will you record it in your memory? Play it over and over, rehearse it. Will you grow angry, hold grudges, grow bitter, or worse, will you try to get revenge, make sure it's an eye for an eye, retaliate? And God is going to say here in all of this, none of those are my design for the body. My design is you forgive whatever complaint you have against another. Scripture speaks of God's forgiveness so many times. That's where we're going to start, move to ourselves, come back to Christ at the end of this. And God often, when he speaks of forgiveness, is just so direct, so blunt uh, with it. It's, but it's just incredible, all the areas of life and salvation that it affects. But I think the repetition of his call for us to be forgiving people shows us how important it is to God, that it's not a topic he visits occasionally, but it's addressed in many, many of the letters of the New Testament and the books of the New Testament. But also how important it is for us because we are united to each other in Christ. So some of the passages, perhaps the best known from the Lord's Prayer, but that itself is striking, that of hundreds of things Jesus could have taught us to pray about, he only put, he boiled it down to very few, but one of those things that seems to be something we should often have in our prayer life is the area of asking for and granting forgiveness. So in the Lord's Prayer is the familiar line, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And at the end of the prayer, Jesus circles back only to explain that one line and makes the very strong statement that if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will forgive you. And if you do not forgive men, your Father will not forgive your transgressions. In Mark 11, I think Jesus goes even further in how challenging this is, but how much he wants this to be part of us. Whenever you stand praying, so it seems to be a call to a daily, hourly posture. Forgive. And then this broad, if you have anything against anyone. And then he repeats the same thought of how important it is to God that we are forgiving people. Forgiveness of sin is such a massive part of God saving us that he says it's also one of the strongest indicators of whether we're really born again and have a new nature of Christ in us or whether we're deceiving ourselves and our old self is still reigning 
and ruling. In Luke 17, another strong call. Be on your guard. If your brother or sister sins, rebuke him. Now That's not something in Colossians 3, but a, a part of this whole dealing with each other when we offend. And if he repents, forgive him. Also a condition not stated in Colossians. Jesus goes on in Luke 17, if, and if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Two simple lines, but profoundly important. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred in a church body stirs up strife, but love covers, forgives all transgressions. Peter, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers, forgives a multitude of sins. And then in Matthew 18, the well-known Peter conversation, uh, one of the well-known Peter conversations, Lord, how often, give me a law here, give me a number, give me a rule, I'm a perfectionist, I want to know exactly that line. How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? And Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven, but up to 70 times seven. And that is where Jesus then tells the parable of the unmerciful, unforgiving servant. And the parable, the way it ends, wants us to keep in mind that the more we realize how massive our mountain, our ocean of sins against God is, and how massive of a price Jesus Christ paid to be able to remove them from us. And the more grateful we are for that, the more we will readily obey this command. To forgive has a lot of definitions. It's simple and yet complex. But some I think of its core things are to be gracious, to give grace where it is not only not deserved, but in fact, the opposite is probably deserved. Forgiveness has mercy in its DNA, withholding something that's due somebody else. It's to willingly choose to pardon someone who has sinned against you. It's to leave another sin in God's hands, or as Peter described Jesus in 1 Peter 2.23, entrusting oneself to the one who judges justly. Came across an article by Jared Olivetti, a pastor that I thought was helpful too. He spoke, and I've slightly modified, this isn't a direct quote, but here's some things he, and using scripture, talked about it entailing. I will cover this sin with the grace of Christ. I relinquish the pursuit of vengeance. I accept the suffering caused by you. I will pray for you. And I desire in will and wisdom to work toward reconciliation, if it be God's will. Now, to be clear, forgiveness does not take away the pain. doesn't mean stop hurting. It doesn't mean justice won't be done. doesn't mean there are no consequences to the person who has done that. It's just not putting those in our hands necessarily. Forgiveness doesn't fix the problem in the relationship. It's just one foundational step. And our forgiveness of someone does not equal God forgiving that person. That is between that person and God. 
and their standing with God and their response to God. But it's not in our court. If God has forgiven them, they should, we should, when we confess to him, part of our repentance should be coming in humbly, confessing, acknowledging, apologizing. James 5.16, confess your sins to one another. I don't think that's the meaning of every sin you've committed, but particularly when you've sinned against each other, own that, confess it, acknowledge it, take your part of that whole process, regardless of their response. And if God has forgiven that individual, then certainly we are not one to withhold forgiveness, are we? And if God has not forgiven that individual, perhaps our willingness to forgive will be part of what models for them and shows them the willing nature of God to forgive should they repent and believe. Our concern is to be obedient to what God is calling us to here, to be compassionate people, kind people, humble people, meek people, patient people, bearing and forgiving. And let's remember that God is at work in both individuals when it's two believers and that he is going to deal with the one who has sinned according to his purposes for that individual. He's going to deal with the one who has been sinned against according to his purposes for that individual. And keep in mind that ultimately God is just asking you to forgive them. He isn't asking you to go to a cross and to pay their penalty. He's done that. He's asking you to take the same posture he has toward that individual and to be willing to forgive them and not to have that attitude. I'm so thankful for my forgiveness, but I can't believe God can forgive that individual. As K.V. Paxton says, there is something deeply gospel-esque in absorbing the costs of somebody else's offense. Tim Keller and Kathy, his wife, wrote a book on marriage, and so this is a quote out of that, so it has in marriage in it, but I want to make a broader application that I think it's true for any kind of close relationships, that there may be little, if anything else, more necessary than the ability from Christ to forgive fully, not hold on to some of it. Some of us forgive to a degree, but not fully, freely, without any other initiation or cause or effect other than just our willingness to do it, unpunishingly and from the heart. C.S. Lewis has a well-known quote, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. But a lesser known quote, in fact, I don't ever remember seeing this before yesterday, uh, but coming across it I thought was helpful. There is no use talking as if forgiveness were easy. We all know the old joke, you've given up smoking once, I've given it up a dozen times. In the same way I could say of a certain man, have I forgiven him for what he did that day? I've forgiven him more times than I can count. For we find that the work of forgiveness has to be done over and over again. We forgive, we mortify our resentment. A week later, some chain of thought carries us back to the original offense, and we discover the old resentment blazing away as if nothing had been done about it at all. We need to forgive our brother 70 times 7, not only for 490 offenses, but for one. 
But what God adds in this section that's unique to any of these other seven characteristics is to bring his son in, to bring himself in, and to say, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Again, so many verses, dozens upon dozens that we could pull up this morning to speak of the incredible forgiveness of God. Just going to remind you particularly of two from the book of Colossians. If you have forgotten about these, would you awaken yourself afresh to the glory of them? All the way back in chapter 1, verse 14, that was months ago that we studied it. <clears throat> but God is describing how he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son at our salvation, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, describing all of us, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And then maybe the most graphic pic pictures of that process. By canceling the debt, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, setting it aside, nailing it to the cross. Certainly of all the great graces that God shows us in saving us, few are as precious, beautiful, meaningful and sweet to us as he forgiving us of all, all our sin against him. Forgiveness is the very heart of God. It's the very heart of the gospel. God requires it in order to have a relationship with him. We desperately need it, and Jesus provides it. So before we go further, let me just pause and say, do you really realize that you will not in heaven if God has not forgiven you of every one of your sins. You cannot take unforgiveness into heaven. Do you realize how massive, no matter how good you think your life has been, how massive your debt of sin is to God and how massive of a price Christ paid to be able to forgive you if you come to him in faith and repentance. Sinclair Ferguson says, the degree to which you see your own need of that forgiveness is the measure of how clearly you understand the gospel. That Jesus came to earth to offer himself on the cross, to make a payment, the only way possible, for without the shedding of perfect blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. But that Jesus did it, not just to heal us of our circumstances and our bodily ailments, but to heal our souls and to save us eternally. Do you know this morning that your sins are fully forgiven by him according to what the Bible and the gospel promises us when we trust in him? Is that your personal experience? Do you know that? Are you reveling in that? You can, even today, know this. Come humbly in faith, repenting. There's more detail in the bulletin. There are tracks on the back table. Please have conversations with us. Or if you're a child, have conversations with your parents. Our sins must be covered. And hallelujah, they have been. And conversely, as the, one of the great graces of God that's most precious is his forgiving us, is one of the most beautiful works of grace in sinners is that he teaches us how to forgive others 
all the wrongs committed against us, which are minuscule compared to what we have done against him. Oh, that Christ would empower us to be just as ready, just as willing to forgive as Christ is. Paul Tripp says, the degree to which you see, nope, you're right, in this fallen world, where we are always sinners in relationship with sinners, one of the most beautiful and protective things God calls us to is forgiveness. So, full verse in concluding here, how forbearing are you? If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, how forbearing has he made you? Perhaps how much more forbearing does he still want to make you? Has God brought anyone to mind today that is difficult for you and challenging for you in this area? Would you lay that individual before him in particular and ask God to do a transformative work in your heart toward them? And secondly, how forgiving are you? If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, How forgiving has he made you? And is there more forgiving spirit that he wants still to develop in you? Have you forgiven your spouse of all wrongs? For most of us, nobody has sinned against us more than our own spouse. And there's nobody we've sinned against more than our own spouse. Perhaps some of you need to forgive a father or a mother or a son, or a daughter. Some of the most ravaging pain we feel is within our own four walls. Perhaps some of you, a former friend, a previous church, or the leaders there. For some of you, somebody who's been incredibly abusive and cruel to you. Many of us have heard the line by Lewis Smedes, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. And while there is self-benefit to forgiving, that again is not our main thrust and motive. The great reason to forgive is because God has done that for you and is asking you now, calling you, charging you to do it for him and to do it for his body that he loves and cares so deeply about. So how are we doing First Street Bible Church in these two areas in our body life. They're hard to measure, right? It's a lot of stuff that goes on that the rest of us don't know about. How are you doing personally? I've asked the Lord this week to make it clear to me if there's anyone in our body that I'm not forbearing with and not forgiving. I pray that God will grant me the grace to change that if it's you. Many of you have been incredibly forbearing with me. Some of you have had to incredibly forgive me. And I'm grateful for those. We would be a less unified body if you hadn't. But I think there's more work that Christ continues to want to do in us until we reach perfect harmony. Finish with this. I have a... Uh, which one do I finish with? I'll finish with the shorter one for your sake. I'll put the other one in the email. It's a repeat. But from Sam Storms, 
saying, how, how do we fulfill something like verse 13? He says, I know of only one way. By meditating on the magnitude of mercy shown you, shown us in the cross of Christ, we must ponder deeply what Christ endured for us rather than fixate on what others have done to create discomfort or pain. That is to say, focus on what Christ has done for you and not what others have done to you. This is the power of grace. Father, we sang just before this message, show us Christ, and I close this message praying the same thing. Show us Christ. Show us all that you have done with our sin in his blood and in his body and overwhelm us, just cover us with that so that out of that flows a compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, bearing with each other and forgiving everything of everything about each other. For your glory's sake, we pray this as you continue to do your work in this body for your glory. Amen.